Morning, everyone. It's so great that you're all here. Thank you uh, to those who've attended regularly and a special thanks to those who are visitors and those who've traveled, really do appreciate it. Um, as those who attend regularly may know, our friend Scott Evans is away at the moment in training to be a rector in uh, Mount Merion. So there was an opening for a middle-aged man with a beard uh, to preach and I was more than happy to step in. As you know, it's a special blessing today uh, to be able to speak to you as Sherry is launching her EP. I'm unbelievably proud of her, but she's going to speak directly to the themes of her music later on. But as it happens, the passages that I was asked to speak on as part of our series, Beloved, Beloved, uh, Beloved, uh, align and reflect with a lot of what she said um, in her music, that we are included, that we are enough, that we are beloved, and that we're called to share that message and practice that message with everyone. So today I was asked to speak on Jeremiah 29.7, where the Jewish exiles were told by the prophet to seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And I was also asked to speak on Colossians 3.23 and 24, which forms part of the code of a Christian household, where St. Paul exhorts the Colossians, uh, whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. So those of you who are uh, part of our community here may recognize Jeremiah 29 as one of the values um, of Holy Trinity. And others of you might recognize the household code um, from other settings, particularly weddings. That's the piece that says, uh, wives submit to your husbands and husband loves, love your wives uh, as the church. And these two passages might seem a little uh, disconnected, but in fact, they reflect a wisdom tradition that's present again and again in the Bible. That in the midst of adversity, in the midst of uncertainty and suffering, we are called to be love to one another. And we have a specific example of that in the person of Jesus, who loves in a radical and self-emptying way. So when Jeremiah was speaking to the people of Israel, they were driven into exile in Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. And Walter Brueggemann says as follows, if we could skip on, that'd be great. Uh, he said, Jeremiah knew long before the others that the end was coming and that God had had enough of indifferent affluence, of cynical oppression and presumptive religion. He knew the freedom of God had been so grossly violated that death was at the door and would not pass over. Because at the time that these exiles uh, um, were in Babylon, and the time Jeremiah was writing, there were some who wanted to fight back, and there were some who wanted to return to Jerusalem to seek to return to the land that had been promised to them by God. And Jeremiah says neither of these ways are God's way. You should not engage in a doomed armed rebellion, nor should you return to Jerusalem and expect strong armed miraculous divine intervention. Instead, as a prophet, Jeremiah practices a radical criticism of the way in which people thought that day, the dominant consciousness of that day. He said of those who longed to return to Jerusalem to get back to the way things were, that they were bad figs that cannot be eaten. And for Walter Brueggemann, this was the essential role of the prophets in the Hebrew uh, Bible. They were to challenge the dominant way of viewing the world because that way of viewing the world had led to numbness, particularly numbness regarding death. But there was also hope 
that there would be a new way or a new understanding of God's faithfulness and covenant to his people. Which brings me nicely to Manchester United. Could have the next slide? Uh, manager Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was a player during uh, my youth and the club's most famous period of success, the treble, in 1999. Uh, youthful on the left there. And when he became club manager last year, he persisted with a massive nostalgia fest. He said, well, if Man United are going to be successful again, they have to go back to the way things were, to the spirit of 99, to that night in Barcelona, uh, to uh, the gaffer and the boss referring to Alex Ferguson. Meanwhile, in reality, Man United have had the worst start to a league season uh, since I've been born. So nostalgia isn't serving him or others very well. Nostalgia and numbness, I think, are, are pretty present in our society today. Look at our TV, look at our film, uh, look at our politics, harking back to a past that may not actually be true, but that people wish perhaps was true. What are we numb about? Or what are we nostalgic for in Ireland and in the church? Do some of us perhaps long for a time when Christianity seemed more popular in Ireland or it was less awkward to talk about? Is our nostalgia, is our numbness more personal? Are we longing for a time in our lives uh, or a relationship or a place that we feel like we can't get back? Instead, of rolling with numbness or nostalgia, Jeremiah called the exiles to live in the tension between hope and suffering. Because the Hebrew prophets remind us again and again that in the midst of suffering, God is faithful. That we have a God who suffers too. A God who grieves for how we harm one another. And a God who wants us to be awake, as Sherry was singing earlier, to both the joys of our lives and the grief that we have and the suffering that we have, but also the joys and the grief of others. So I ask you today, is that your experience of God? Is that your experience of church? Is your Jesus someone who rejoices and suffers with you? Or does your Jesus look a little bit more like this? This is my favorite image of Jesus on the internet. Uh, he's been to the gym and uh, death has uh, not held him back all too much, right? Now, don't get me wrong, Jesus is definitely powerful. The Gospels show Jesus using God's power to perform miracles that show God is generous and abundant. He feeds the hungry, he heals the ill, he includes the excluded. But Jesus always uses his power in a certain way, and I don't think it's to lift. Instead, he always chooses relationship over domination and control and aggression. The only time that those muscles may have come in handy was when he was challenging the religious leaders of the day who sought to control how other people were relating to the divine. You'll remember he drives them out of the temple having made a whip. And of course, being religious leaders, they did not take this lying down. They killed him for it. Jesus takes the logic of sacrifice, of empire and exile, to their inevitable conclusion. He submits non-violently to arrest on no charge, to torture, to humiliation, and ultimately to death. And I put it to you that in doing so, he shows us the way to be love in our community today. Because friends, the pattern of the Bible is not a story of easy success. 
It's not a how-to guide in terms of how to avoid pain or death. Equally, it is not God blessing the powerful or the strong, imposing their will on the weak and the vulnerable. Instead, friends, I think it's possible to read the Bible as a book about how we face the injustices and the hardships of life with a deep, deep hope that love wins, that all tears are wiped away, that death does not have the last word. The pattern of the Bible and the pattern of the natural world around us in this changing season as leaves are falling, the pattern is of birth, death, and rebirth, resurrection. The divine, the God among us, does not impose suffering, I think, but instead suffers in us and alongside us and tells us to hope that all suffering will be transformed, will be redeemed. Now, the Bible, if we open it up, is a pretty violent book. There's some wars, there's some sexual violence, there's uh, destruction that some have called genocidal. Sometimes it's very hard to read or make sense. The Bible is us at our best and our worst. And it is God with us at every stage of the way, loving us in our good moments and our bad moments, always ready, as Sherry sings, to welcome us back home. If we choose to read the tricky bits of the Bible or the challenging bits of the Bible in light of Jesus, it's a book that consistently draws those on the margins, the younger son, the foreigner, women, eunuchs, into relationship with love, acceptance, and dignity that's offered by the divine, where everyone, with no exceptions, is a child of God. As Sherry sings in her song, You Welcome Us Home, in you we find our worth. We are your sons and daughters, and so freely we go forth to live as your beloved. And if you can't tell, that was me singing. That's basically all I have. So it's that type of radical message that the sufferings of this world, the hardships, the names people call one another, that they aren't the ultimate or the last say in the world. It's that type of thinking that animated and started the early church in our community in Colossae, uh, the letter to the Colossians. In Colossians 3, uh, verse 10, Paul writes, when you clothe yourself with a new self, you are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator, Jesus. In that renewal, as a Christian, there is no longer Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ. Christ is all, and Christ is in all. And then a couple of lines later, he writes this household code text, if we could have the slide. And it says some things that don't seem particularly to line up with our culture today, and that historically have been used by the powerful to keep the weak and the marginal down. We hear wives submit to your husbands. The part about husbands loving their wives doesn't seem to get the same emphasis in history. Children obey your parents in everything, and my day job is in looking at child abuse, and we can imagine how that's been used. Fathers do not provoke your children. And then slaves obey your earthly masters in everything, not only while being watched and in order to please them, but wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. And forget of the next slide. And so whatever your task, put yourselves into it as done for the Lord and not for your masters, since you know that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward and serve uh, the Lord Christ. 
Now, a household code is not a uniquely Christian thing. In ancient literature, as far back as Aristotle, the idea of the family was the fundamental social unit in society. How the family was structured would reflect not only how society as a whole, empires were structured, but would also reflect what the gods were like and what life itself was like. So we have Aristotle uh, saying, the smallest and uh, primary parts of the household are master and slave, husband and wife, father and children. And then he goes on to make a whole lot of disparaging remarks about anybody who's not male and in charge. So some people are naturally slaves, according to Aristotle. Women are naturally inferior um, to men, and so on. So men in this period of the early church were described as paterfamilias, the head of the household. They were in charge of wives, sons, daughters, and slaves, but not as a family of equals or a family of intimates, but as pieces of property that were owned and could be used by the head of the house. So today when we hear the phrase patriarchy, it starts here. By patriarchy, I don't just mean men in charge, because it's more than that and indeed can be perpetuated by anyone. Instead, I mean a system where individuals or groups act in such a way that they say, my way is the only way, and if you are on the fringes, your views and your experience don't count. Patriarchy frames life as a competition where there must be winners and losers. And as a result, these texts have been read in a patriarchal way for centuries. The household codes formed part of a public debate in the United States during the Civil War, where this was used as a basis uh, for armed and organized violence and to justify slavery. So sometimes reading the Bible can be very hard. And I really want to read them and dismiss them in a way that sits with my own moral teaching and my own values. I want to read, read them like the way they were translated uh, in a gift a friend of ours gave us uh, a while ago, the Twible, the Twitter-length Bible. Their version of Colossians 3 said, Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair. How about freedom? That seems right and fair. Now, I'd love to do that, but that's not being true to what the Bible says, and nor is it being true to what the Bible is. We can read the Bible, sure, as a book that will help us clean up our lives as a series of rules. But it's not really designed for that. It's a book of wisdom. It's actually, I think, designed to help us wake up to who we are, to grow up, and ultimately to show up for the people who need us. Sherry and I have had the privilege with Scott and Christina and Paul Keegan in uh, leading a young adults group on, on Thursday evenings. Shout out to young adults. Um, and there when we debate, because we come from different backgrounds and different traditions, what uh, the Bible says, we are always reminded that when we have a choice about interpretation, there is a Jesus way to read the text. What would Jesus do? Where can you find Jesus in the midst of a horrible or, or, or challenging text that seems contrary to goodness and love and so on? So if we want to read the household code that says one man is in charge and everybody else beneath them, it can't just align neatly with the code of Aristotle with Jesus on top. So Elizabeth Schusser, a German scholar, says, just as born Jews had to abandon the privilege when entering the early church that they alone were the chosen people of God, so masters also had to relinquish their power over slaves and husbands over wives and children. Following Christ meant that not only Gentiles and slaves, but also women could lead the early church. The early church was an example that wherever you were in the hierarchy 
of society, you had the opportunity to give away your power and your privilege. So for a first century man to love his wife or to put her first, or for a father to avoid provoking their child, or for a master to deal kindly with their slave, was radical, was a radical change from what was expected of a man and how they exercise power. So Paul, in this text, is subverting the norms and affirming the dignity of all people on the margins, that they are not things that others will control. They're not chattels, but instead they are people, they are children of God. Our identity today then matters to God. How you describe yourself, how you identify yourself matters to God. And Sherry sings a prayer uh, in one of her songs, may we be at home in our own house. May you be true to who you are and who you are really uh, as God sees you. Is that true for you? Do you feel at home in your own house? And if not, I'd encourage you to reflect on the question, what stops you accepting that you are accepted? If I put the, my next slide up and it had the worst thing that you had ever done, would you trust that things will still be okay? And we'll go to that slide now. No, we won't. So in the Christian household, to be love means to follow the example of Jesus and Jesus emptied himself for us on the cross, and so we're called to empty ourselves for others too. Paul affirms, therefore, that if we're going to challenge slavery or patriarchy or the structures of the world, we don't do so through violent rebellion or through violent argument. The way for love to triumph is to suffer with others and to engage in nonviolent confrontation. Yahweh doesn't tell Jeremiah to instantly deliver the Jews from exile. Jesus doesn't overthrow the Roman Empire and the temple system all in one day, and yet all have passed away. So today we are called to live like the exiles and like Jesus in the tension between hope and suffering. We're called to live secure in who we are, knowing that love is stronger than death. So the thought I want to leave you with today is, if we have the audacity to call ourselves Christians, do we love like Jesus loved? Do we empty ourselves of our egos and our selfishness? Do we say no to power structures today that seek to control and exclude others? Jesus wasn't nostalgic and Jesus wasn't numb to those who were different than him, but he showed them great love and he endured great suffering to tell everyone that they are welcome and that they are included. He showed compassion again and again. The word compassion means literally to suffer with. So, the point of a Christian life I put to you is not to judge the ungodly, but to stand in solidarity with everyone and everything who suffers. Jesus always sought the lower places and not the higher. In Colossians, Paul told us, Christ is all and is in all. And so a good definition I have learned from Richard Rohr is that a mature Christian sees Christ in everything and everyone else. A mature Christian sees Christ in everything and everyone else. So again, I encourage you, if you call yourself a Christian, what stops you extending the status of a child to God that we sing about to everyone?
What is stopping you, you see in Christ in everyone, regardless of their identity? If I could put up that slide again, the worst thing one of us has ever done, would we be people who model the love, forgiveness, and compassion of Jesus to one another in the midst of awkwardness, embarrassment, and suffering? If that's not been your experience of church today or uh, in your life, I'm sorry, and I'm sorry that we've not lived up to the standards and, the, and the, 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 the way of Jesus. Are we going to have the uh, audacity, the courage, and the love to be people who believe, as Sherry sings, your gates are wide enough, your grace is big enough, there is room for everyone.